Welcome to episode 5 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my delightful co-host Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. This week's episode is going to be a special one. We'll be sharing our first ever interview with Danielle Applestone, who's had a significant influence in the hobby CNC scene. She brings with her years of experience as a scientist, maker, and entrepreneur, and a really interesting perspective about digital fabrication. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Winston and I are honored to introduce Danielle Applestone, our very first guest host on the Digital Fabrication Experiment. Danielle is the founder and CEO of Daughters of Rosie. She is also the former CEO of Bantam Tools, makers of the Bantam Tools desktop PCB milling machine, also known as the other mill. Danielle, welcome to the Digital Fabrication Experiment. Thanks so much for having me. So you're in Berkeley right now, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, Berkeley, California. And you've spent a little bit of time in Texas in the past. Yeah, that's right. I did uh, graduate school at UT Austin for about, I think I was there for about eight years, actually, all total. Glad to know you've had a little bit of Texas in your history. Yeah, I love Texas. Austin is a great place to raise a family. So you said something last year at a conference that really intrigued me. You said, give everyone robots. (laughs) What did you mean by that? Well... What I meant by that is there is going to be a lot of automation in our future, and some of it will look like humanoid robots, but a lot of it will be machines that are augmenting the tasks that we do every day, and give everyone robots is a nod to, we're going to be leaving people behind if we don't increase access to the kind of tools that people are using for automation and Some of that could be software or physical robots, but I want to make sure that as we move forward technologically, that we're making sure that everyone is moving forward at the same time. Winston and I were talking on the last episode or a couple of episodes back about uh, automation and kind of the upcoming perceived threat to jobs. We're talking about an article in the Wall Street Journal that was saying that there's kind of a counter trend uh, as automation becomes more prevalent, especially in the, it starts impacting careers, that there's more desire among consumers for some product that has a human in the loop in the production or design of it. I was kind of wondering what your thoughts were on that. Is that some folks, like you said, will be on board with the robots, right? And some folks may be uncomfortable with that. And where where do those people fit in, into the, uh, our robotic future? Well, to be honest, the whole notion of losing jobs due to automation, I think is kind of false. If we were already at 100% employment in manufacturing, and we were introducing robots, and they were literally replacing people's jobs, I'd feel differently. But the fact is that we have millions of baby boomers that are retiring, and their jobs aren't being replaced by robots, because they're higher skilled jobs. I don't see I don't see people being replaced by robots necessarily some total. So there's that side of it, but the other side is like you want to I think everyone wants to automate the tasks that are mundane, the tasks that don't require the specialness of a human mind to do. I don't know that there's you know that, that people would prefer to stay in jobs that can be automated. I think that what's more important is actually training for folks so that they can get better jobs. 
jobs that engage more of them as humans, um, more of their creativity, more of their problem-solving skills. Yeah, Winston and I um, often talk about digital fabrication technology, CNC, robotics, not necessarily as a threat, but as a kind of a creativity force multiplier. You know, technology throughout history has always been scary at first, yet eventually, you know, we adapt to it and basically put it to our own uses. Yeah, it's, it's I'm going to stop lurking. And it's, it's sort of like a, an enabling technology, right? It allows you to take what you have creatively in your mind and make a physical realization of it, even if you don't have the, the manual skills to be a traditional woodworker. Um, so it uh, brings a lot more people into the fold if you can get them on board with the technology. I think that's totally right. It shouldn't take you 30 years to master something. We don't have 30 years. We maybe have three years before we need to be replacing, you know, a, a traditional CNC operator with someone new. And the only way we're going to do that is if the tools are easier to use than they used to be. And I think that we're getting there with digital fabrication equipment. Yeah, it seems like a new age. From the Renaissance times, to build something, you had to, you had to be a skilled craftsman, right? And then we hit the industrial age, mass production, lowered the skill level needed to produce something in society. And now it seems like you know, we've tried both ways. And now the technology is merging with software and I guess also the desires of the consumer, right, to be able to enable small teams or even a single person to harness this technology, produce creative output and find a market for it. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I love it. Whenever you can reduce the amount of money that is required to start a business, especially a hardware business, I think it's great because more people will be able to participate. It's not just the big companies with all the capital that can bring products into the world. A lot of teams will be able to do that because the amount of money you need and the expertise you need is much lower than it used to be. Well, I'm sold on giving everybody robots. How do we do that? <laughs> well, first you have to make the robots less expensive. But the other thing, I was talking with a couple of women who are in the design space and designing interfaces for robots and things like that. And I think that one of the ways that we need to do some work is on understanding how humans interact with each other so that we can make robots interact with humans a little bit better. Until that happens, I don't think we'll be able to actually give robots to everyone. Um, but I think that if we continue working and continue continue understanding the ways in which humans communicate with each other, the things that motivate us. We can integrate robots into our lives more easily, and then they can really augment whatever it is that we're working on. Do you think there's ever going to be a point where um, bringing robots, be it CNC, 3D printing, um, will become a more ingrained part of our curriculum in schools, just like how uh, computer science um, is almost sort of like a language requirement now, um, just because it trains your mind to think and communicate in a different way. Do you think we'll see that for digital fabrication tools? I absolutely do, because we can't just focus on the intellectual. We have to focus on the physical. People need to be able to sculpt the world around them. And these are the kind of tools that allow you to do that. With a CNC machine, you can actually make parts that interface with commodity scale parts. Like you can really make a hole that'll fit a real bearing that you got from the store. And things like that are really important, like access to real tools. And I feel like we have done a lot to focus on intellectual content in schools, but 
we got rid of a lot of the physical making and constructing and a lot of the problems that we're facing as a society it's not just about what do you know it's often what can you build and so i hope that's the direction that we're moving in there's a certain core skill set once it's lost it's lost right um especially in manufacturing there was always concern that aircraft manufacturing skills might leave this country and never be able to be recovered right it's such a long investment and a collection of experience and knowledge that if you don't keep workers continually coming into that field it's a very valuable skill and base of knowledge that uh, you're at risk of losing forever I agree with that somewhat, but I also think that if we lose it, we'll invent a way around it. I think that it's often faster to start with that knowledge as your base, but I just believe that humans are super ingenious. Like, we can come up with things. Whenever there's a real need, we can solve it. But if we don't have problem solvers, then we're really screwed. Like, then we actually can't do it. We can't make up for the lost knowledge. So I always advocate, like, I don't really care what people study in schools as long as they're learning how to evaluate things from a critical perspective and solve problems. So I got my robot thanks to you. My first milling machine was the Bantam Tools other mill, uh, which Daniel's company produced. Could you tell me a little bit about um, how the other mill almost didn't see the light of day? <laughs> What's the early history? Yeah. I know I know you started a product for the educational market, right? Um, and it kind of took a long wandering way to the top of my desk. That's right. Yeah, there was a lot of moments of peril, I would say, in the history of the other mill and now the Banton Tools desktop PCB milling machine. But we started on a government grant. The Department of Defense did a study and they realized that we were losing the people who were the fixers, the builders, the mechanics, the people who knew how to operate the military infrastructure. And so that was their focus. They wanted more people who had skills in manufacturing and building and things. So they thought, well, okay, we got rid of shop class. How do we put it back? And how do we give the students tools that are more modern? And so we were essentially hired to develop a class of manufacturing machines that could be used by high schoolers and that were low cost. So the other mill was one of the prototypes that we made back for DARPA, but we were supposed to have three years to work on this project, and it ended up ending about four months into it, four months after I started. So that was our first big hurdle, and we ended up just continuing. I had been so dedicated to the idea of low-cost manufacturing tools to educate the next generation of manufacturing workforce that I just didn't want to stop. So I ended up taking some consulting gigs and giving the team some time to run a Kickstarter campaign and then fundraising. And about four years and $7 million later, we actually ended up having a successful company and, and selling the company, and now it's continuing on and thinking about what are the other machines that need to be out there in order for anyone to be able to make a great product. I can't wait to see what, what they've got coming next. Um, were you surprised by the success of that Kickstarter campaign? I don't think I even stopped to consider it. I just <laughs> kept going. Because I 
am a scientist by trade. I finished up my degree at UT Austin, moved out to the Bay Area, joined this government grant, which was promptly canceled. And then I was just thrust into being a startup CEO and fundraising and all of that. So I am only just now taking the time really to reflect on what an insane series of events that was. It, it definitely does seem like a very up and down roller coaster ride, especially when the DARPA rug was pulled out from under you. When you're faced with these very real possibilities of failure, did you have any takeaways that you learned from it? Or did you have to develop a special kind of resiliency to get through this? Uh, because a lot of people, they don't get to experience this uh, entrepreneurship, small business, uh, intense, innovative development cycles that you've been through. Yeah, I guess I didn't allow myself to believe that there was a choice. I just decided that this needed to happen. And I was going to do everything I possibly could to make it happen. And I was only going to stop if someone told me to. So I think I built that resilience as a kid. I really just, I'm, I'm from the middle of nowhere in Arkansas and the first person in my family to go to college. And I made my way out of Arkansas to MIT and I just kept making steady progress, little bits of progress. I would get into a free science camp. I got to go to a statewide math and science school. I managed to get to MIT, and then I managed to get into UT. And then, you know, I just keep doing little stuff that feels like progress. And there's a lot of times when it felt more like luck than anything else. And I, I think that if you have lived your life that way, being an entrepreneur is, I mean, it's just sort of like a microcosm of that. You just keep surviving until someone tells you to stop. And in my case, it just kept working. Like, we just kept doing it. You know, that makes sense. Um, I've been in some projects where it, it feels like you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you know what your next step is, and you just have to keep taking that one step after the other, and eventually you'll, you'll get through it. So you mentioned that science and technology have sort of always been a part of who you were. Did you have any defining moments in your memory that sort of, um, when you look back, make you realize that you've been on this path to promote science and technology your whole life and that this has been an interest for you? Yeah, it is kind of creepy sometimes to look back at the entire sequence and be like, oh, I've been singing the same song for 38 years or, or 30 years, you know? I... I don't even know how it happened, honestly, because my guess is that it was sometime when I was very young. And I know that I learned that science and technology was my way out. It was a way of accessing the larger world from just my hometown. That became clear just through a, a few small, few small experiences, just with going to, you know, nerd camps in the summer or something. But it just kept opening doors for me. And I think somewhere in there, I started telling other people that it was opening doors and being like, hey, you know what? You should try this. This is actually good. People need you. People need scientists and engineers and things. And if you follow this path, it might go somewhere. Like you might be able to use it for something. And now thinking about things coming full circle and thinking about Daughters of Rosie, 
I found myself in a situation where I hired a bunch of women to work in our factory at Bantam Tools over the years. And it was a great job and it transformed them from being more reactive, I would say, in their career to being proactive and being able to go for a new job in a new industry. And it's the same thing. It's like, if you know how to build stuff, someone will give you a job. And it's the same thing I would tell myself if I met myself when I was five, right? Like, that's the story that I'm currently telling. So I'm kind of curious, in the early days of Bantam, was the product resonating more with makers or with kind of the education, engineering, lab professional, especially that coming out of Kickstarter? I'm kind of wondering if you hit the target market you were aiming for, or was there a surprise there, especially like makers versus professionals adopting the machine? I think that the experience I had was one of the world isn't exactly like I would want it to be yet. Like I wanted this CNC machine and I think our whole company did, our whole team wanted it to be on every child's desk in every school. But what we found is that the world wasn't quite ready for it. And it still was kind of an expensive tool for those folks. So we ended up trying to sell into a more general audience. Like jewelers, of course, can use it. It's amazing. You know, you can cut metal with a vector file, which is pretty unheard of. But it there just weren't enough people who needed it at that price point. I think maybe had it been a $300 product, maybe it would have been easier for the maker and the educator. But we ended up finding a sweet spot in the professionals, electrical engineers or mechanical engineers who needed small things made, university labs and things like that. So it it had more of a home on the professional's desktop than it did on the maker's bench. And it was actually pretty a significant shift in our company culture to realize that and to say, hey, we're not giving up. We are focusing on a different group of people who really need this product. And if we keep surviving, more kids will get access to this kind of equipment. Yeah, that's not all that surprising. The hobby maker movement still dominated by 3D printing owners. And I think mm-hmm. some of those folks find... CNC milling machines to be scary and mysterious. Right. Your company did a great job of removing some of that mystery. And uh, Winston and I are doing our part to change that perception. Uh, Do you have any advice on how we could be more effective when encouraging people to explore CNC milling as a hobby or even a small business opportunity? I think it's important to acknowledge that no matter what you do, if you're doing something interesting, you're going to have to learn something. But the most important part is communicating with people that it's possible. So it's not like, it's not a push button thing. You don't just put a piece of metal in there, push a button, and it makes a magical thing. You do have to learn some things, but you will be able to learn those things. It is possible for you to learn those things. So I think acknowledging that there is some stuff to learn, but just breaking it down into the simple, poss- the simplest possible explanations and going piece by piece 
the more on-ramps that you can create and the more gentle the slope is of those on-ramps, the more people that you will attract to this, to this movement really. And, uh, it's, it's sometimes it's hard because it's very easy if you've been doing it for a while to just jump into jargon and jump way ahead when actually sometimes people just need the basics over again. So taking our time, I think as the industry gets more, um, more experienced, I think is the, is the key there. Did y'all find that software was really the key to uh, unlocking the capabilities of a machine like that for a non-machinist, non-technical user? Oh, yeah. It was all about the software. The innovations in the hardware side were just like a few simple fixturing things that we did, but it was completely software. The idea that you could draw something, draw, draw something on a piece of paper, take a picture of it, and then be milling that was kind of crazy. Like, <laughs> that's not how people run CNC machines. But we thought, instead of being like, oh, this is how CNC machines are run, we thought, how would a person who doesn't know anything run a CNC machine? And so that approach is just very different. And it led to the software looking very different than any kind of traditional CNC machine software. You said something earlier. If something is interesting, then there's probably some learning that has to be done to get there. Um, but I was going to sort of ask you where you thought the digital fabrication technology was going to go in the future. How is it going to look different? What's society's relationship with this technology going to be? 3D printing's like everyone's dream of it was that it would be an appliance and that everyone and their grandma would have one in their home. Um, but clearly that reality has not played through. Do you think, um, given your unique perspective as being both a user and a creator of digital fabrication tools, that the situation might improve? Or do you think we're taking a different trajectory to get to our, our digital future? I like to describe this question or my answer to this question in the following way. Like there's a certain percentage of people who will buy pre-made food. And then there's a smaller percentage, which will actually make a meal at their home. And then there's a smaller percentage of those people who will actually make their ingredients like a tomato sauce or bake a bread for themselves. And then there's an even smaller percentage of people who will like invent a new type of pastry. And so I think that no matter what category it is, there's always going to be there's always going to be this drop off in the number of people who actually will use a sewing machine versus wear clothes. Like everybody's wearing clothes, but only a certain percentage of those people are using a sewing machine. And so I think that when it comes to these robots, there will be that same, that same band of people that are using a sewing machine will use the robots. And I think that there will be a much broader range of robots available, robots that do all kinds of small tasks for you. And the vision of the future that I'd like to see is actually more of a platform so that you can have CNC machines do all kinds of weird tasks for you. Like not just a milling machine, but you can kind of see it if you're like, oh, I could have this milling machine draw like a tape a pen to the end of it and then it's draw it's a drawing machine so that doesn't quite exist yet there's not a platform that people can make modular and make it do a whole bunch of useful tasks but i think there will be 
and there will be a group of people who are using those, but it is not, in my opinion, going to be a mass market. I think the only the only exception to that is actually robots that are like Alexa or an elevator. Like you get into an elevator, you push a button, it takes you somewhere. Like that's actually a robot. It's moving, it's got electricity, things like that. But I think like the vision of everybody's grandma having a 3D printer at their house is not realistic. Just because we don't need it. I really like that answer. <laughs> Especially because as a foodie, that, that uh, cooking metaphor really uh, resonates with me. <laughs> have you ever, have you, have you baked your own bread? Much younger um, when my, my parents, uh, they, they bought a bread making machine and I sort of... A robot. Yeah. Yes, a robot. Um, but just having that recipe book that came with it and understanding the ingredients that went into it um, sort of just gave me a better idea of what goes into it. And that's when I realized that I was probably a little too lazy to, to do the whole baking thing. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to. But someone does and someone has robots mixing their dough and things like that. So whether it's a dough mixing robot or a robot putting the bottoms of shoes on or a fabric cutting robot or anything like there'll be a lot more machines around us that we use to do repetitive tasks. But I think it'll be more at the business level, like the cottage industry level than in everyone's home. Kind of a, a distributed manufacturing vision with the technology diffusing out into smaller and smaller industrial bases. That's kind of the way I think things seem to be heading with the, the technology software and, and the machines getting so much better. You could come in and make a viable product with probably the smallest resource commitment in the history of time, right? Uh, in this, right. this era, and it's getting better all the time. I also think that it's going to take a blend. And when we first made the other mill, we had access to a giant machine shop and used all the big CNC machines, water jet, milling machines, table routers. We used it all. And when we started our R&D department back, again, we didn't have any of that. But what we had was smaller scale tools and we had access to services that were much easier. Access to services like Fictive and, or we had relationships with a couple small machine shops in the area that could be, do prototyping for us. So it's not only just that the machines themselves are getting easier to use, it's also getting easier to communicate small jobs with shops that actually want to do small jobs. And there's ones that are specializing in it. So it's, it's going kind of both ways. It's that more, more people are having more demand for smaller parts and then machine shops are like, actually it's lucrative to do these smaller parts when it didn't used to be. So I think there's all, like people are coming at the problem from all kinds of different avenues. You know, you can use MFG.com now and get parts that are fairly reasonable. It doesn't take that long. It used to be way harder, but because the software is better, you can design parts that are closer to what you actually want and it's not that expensive to get them. You put a premium on trying to find local suppliers when you were working with at Bantam. I, I remember you spoke uh, you spoke about building the workforce of 2030 at Hackaday Super Conference last year. Uh, that was all about manufacturing jobs too uh, in the United States. 
What makes manufacturing such a good opportunity for young students making their career choices? I mean, right now there's over 600,000 open manufacturing jobs in the U.S. And these are jobs that pay well. They have full benefits. Some of these places even have like on-site medical treatment and things like they're being very competitive because their workforce is retiring and they need to attract more talent uh, to supplement it. So there's tons. I mean, there's tons of manufacturing going on in the United States. Like we're, if we're not number one, it's only by a small fraction. We're like still a very powerful manufacturing economy. I mean, I hear a lot of lamenting about, you know, shop classes no longer in high school, right? It's hard to access the traditional path to a manufacturing career, apprenticeships, shop class. Um, I'm not so sure that's the relevant way into that these days anyway, but I know, so you started Daughters of Rosie to specifically bring more women into these jobs in manufacturing. How exactly does Daughters of Rosie work? Well, we work with manufacturers who want to hire women. And we help them set up training programs that are just for women. So they can either do the training programs on site or they can sponsor the women to go get trained in a group at a local technical college. And the reason for that is, no surprise, manufacturing is mostly men. And in order to get women interested in manufacturing and create a good workforce, they really need more support. So with Daughters of Rosie, they're able to train together and they get hired together. And so when they walk through the door of the factory or the manufacturing facility, they have support. They have support of their peers that they just trained with. And they also have the support of the larger Daughters of Rosie network. And that's really what's required if we're going to get more women into manufacturing. And I I don't think of manufacturing as necessarily, you know, the only way that people can go. But what I see is right now we have the biggest manufacturing labor crisis in the country that we've had since World War II. And we only have, you know, 28% of the manufacturing workforce is women, even though women make up half the regular workforce. So I'm like, okay, we've got 600,000 open jobs. We've got women who are underrepresented in this field, and they're not going to join on their own. So we have to do what's required to give them a little extra support so that we can actually solve this manufacturing labor crisis we have, because it's only going to get worse. The number is 2 million unfilled jobs by 2025 if we don't do anything about it. And that's, that's like 5% of your company being sick every day. Like, it's a huge drain. And I care about this country. I care about manufacturing. I care about just how important it is to have the means of production. And I think that it should be local. And the only way we do that is if we have more people who know how to build things, more people in manufacturing. Beyond, say, traditional jobs in manufacturing, these same skills are an excellent gateway to uh, entrepreneurship or, and self-employment. Do you see Daughters of Rosie exploring this career path option too? I think eventually, if you have enough women who are trained, they're going to gather together and be like, let's do something with all these skills that we have. So I think that 
my vision for Daughters of Rosie is it's it's career support throughout. So if you want to start as a composites technician, and then maybe you're a composites team lead, and then you become a product manager, and maybe you want to go back to school, these companies will pay for you to go back to school as well. And then you go back to school, you get a, maybe you get an engineering degree, maybe you end up being head of engineering. It is a way to have a career, even if maybe you didn't get school right when everybody else got school. Like maybe you just went out and got a job because you had to support your family. And now you're like, ugh, there's no way to grow where I'm at. There's no way to make more money. I don't want to just work more hours. I want a better job. And that's what these manufacturing jobs are. You're either building the robots or you're working for them, right? Yeah. And both are actually great. Like having robots <laughs> having robots tell you what to do is super useful. No, I think they're both great. I'm all about staying relevant to our future robot overlords. Oh, yes, that's true. Well, you know what? In that case, you better learn how to manage up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm really interested in, in Daughters of Rosie. I mean, that sounds like a very, uh, you have a lot of passion for doing that. And I, I agree with you. That's a very important gap to fill in the United States. Um, and women sound like an excellent excellent resource to tap, right? Uh, works great for the manufacturers, works great for women. And so I'm, I'm curious, how does how does a, a maker like Winston and I and, and our audience, uh, what can we do locally to help DOR's mission? Oh, yeah. Well, say you go and get something made by a local shop, asking them, oh, do you have any open positions? You know, are you hiring? Are you struggling with hiring? Like any local manufacturer being like, hey, I know a way that you could fill those jobs, then that's a good point for Daughters of Rosie. Because as long as they can hire at least two women at a time, then we can set up a way for those women to be trained together and hired together. And so we just want to help these manufacturers hire as fast as they can and have less turnover because these women are more dedicated to the job. So any manufacturer that might be interested in solving their labor needs uh, through hiring women, just point them my direction. And then in the other case, we have specifically a pilot program running with a, a company called Saildrum. We're just about to announce it. And they make autonomous sailing vessels. They sail around the ocean and collect better data about our planet than has ever been created. And they are hiring 10 of our Daughters of Rosie to put them in two training programs that are two months long, they get paid. And then at the end of that, if they did great, then they get offered a job. So anyone who is in the Bay Area who's interested should just reach out to me. Fill out the contact form on Daughters of Rosie because there's open jobs right now for people who want a better career and a career in manufacturing. Um, so looking at an even broader scale, you said like we can encourage uh, local shops to be open to hiring women. What if what can we do anything to sort of get more women interested in these jobs? Because I know there's a lot of like societal pressure that that might push women away from uh, careers in STEM or engineering. Is there anything that we can do? Because looking at my YouTube channel, I know like my audience is like 5% female. Like how can we shift that balance in order to, to sort of make this uh, maker community more open for women? Well, I like to think about what's working. 
So if you take the field of nursing, for example, that's working. Women are applying to be nurses at a crazy high rate. That's like all the programs are oversubscribed for nursing uh, in, in the regions where I work. And it's because women have seen other nurses. They have experienced what nursing is like. They probably know someone in their family who's in nursing. And so they know it is a place where, hey, I'm going to be safe there. I can totally do that job. It's a job that's for someone like me. I can do it. And it also has a great reputation. It's the medical profession. It's adjacent to doctors. And nobody is going to push back on, I want to help people be healthy. Like it's sort of, it's sort of like across the board, a great, you know, it has great marketing. So women aren't going into manufacturing and they're not part of the maker scene and the CNC manufacturing scene because they don't see anyone who looks like them. They don't know any other women who have ever done it before. They don't know what the job entails. And it has a reputation of being dirty and dangerous and unwelcoming. And so we all need to do work to change that, to actually highlight what's going well in manufacturing and making and highlight women who are doing well in it. I follow um, Tradeswomen of Instagram, which is like this amazing... (laughs) feed of it's just photographs of women at their job and it's all tradeswomen and I swear to you like go there and you will be like feel empowered I don't care if you're you know what gender you are (laughs) it is a very empowering feed so I think that's the bulk of the work that we could do is to highlight every little shred of success um, that women are having in this industry and really show that it's a great job it's for for people to have we're definitely adding tradeswomen of Instagram to our show notes. Yeah. Um, so I know we're running running pretty close to the end here. I, just, I did have a couple more questions I wanted to ask you, one of which will be about the other mill. I'm pretty sure you've made things personally on the other mill. Uh, what was your favorite project that you did personally on Bantam Tools desktop milling machine? My favorite project was such a weird one. So I have this neighbor who works for a robotics company. But the robotics company that he works for is like a biology company. And what the company does is it's like a, it's a pipetting robot. So it has, and pipetting is like you take a, it's sort of like a turkey baster, like a tiny turkey baster. You like suck up some fluid and then you spit it out somewhere else. So there's machines that do this work. And they, but they're sucking up very small amounts of liquid, like not, you know, there's like a milliliter. Well, this is a nanoliter, like even smaller than that. So very small, like 125 nanoliters of liquid at a time. And he found out what I worked on and he said, hey, you know what? We've got these aluminum pieces that our robot puts puts liquid into and there's 900 basically 900 holes in this piece of aluminum and it's very small this piece of aluminum is about two inches by two inches and he said you know we buy these and they're so expensive it's like three thousand dollars a piece to buy this two inch by two inch piece of aluminum just because it has these 900 holes drilled in it that are a specific volume. And he's like, and we buy it and we've got to clean it all out. And 
we fill it up with samples, and then we have to move it, and it has no handle. It's just like to the edge. You can't even really lift this thing if you want to move it from machine to machine. And he said, your machine is this high precision metal cutting CNC. Could we make one? He's like, I'd really like to make one that didn't have so many holes and it had a little tab that I could hang on to. And in like an afternoon bleeding into an evening on the weekend, we're just like sitting at my kitchen table, having some beers and made this, it's called a micro array. We made this piece of aluminum with a tab on it. And it has, I think it's, it's wells were something like 200 nanoliters deep, but so I asked him what this is used for, and he's like, oh, well, we do trials. It's like clinical trials. So if you want to figure out a cure for psoriasis or something like that, who knows, you want to run thousands and thousands of experiments. And so you want to combine little droplets of liquid and see what happens. And so he said, he's, he took it with him to work, and then he sent me a video the next day, and it was his robot depositing tiny little volumes into this microarray that we made. And I thought, that is pretty insane because that that piece that we made was like 30 cents and it would have cost him three grand to buy one. And the one that he was going to buy wasn't even like right for what he needed. And so I love it because first of all, I'm a material scientist and super nerd and I know how expensive it is to do real research. And I thought, this isn't just a tool for building cool stuff. It's a tool for reducing the cost of scientific research and things like that. Like it's, you know, when you democratize these machines, they go everywhere. And it reduces the cost of everyone to get their work done. And that was that, you know, that's why that's my favorite thing that we ever made. Cause it just gives me goosebumps when I still think about it. I'm just like, if we can reduce the cost of scientific research by 10,000 <laughs> or whatever, then, then that's huge. Wow. There's that. And it makes some pretty awesome spinners. <laughs> it does. Fidget spinners and like micro arrays for psoriasis research. Like same tool. Now you just have to combine both of them together. <laughs> That's a really great story. Um, so for anyone in our audience that may want to actually see you speak in person, do you have any public speaking engagements on your calendar in the near future? I actually do, oddly enough. Um, I am giving a talk at the Develop 3D conference in Boston in October. Perfect. I'll drop a link to that conference in our show notes. Are there any closing thoughts or words of inspiration you'd like to leave with us this evening? Closing thoughts. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, maybe this is just for you all, but I'm at this point in my life where I... I'm having to actively, and I'm privileged to have to actively decide between very compelling futures. I could be a CEO of another company, or I could join a company and accelerate their operations or whatever. But the thing that's really pulling me is Daughters of Rosie. And it's scary because it's just me so far. I have no money. And yet it's happening. And I have to remind myself, it is just about one foot in front of the other, just making small amounts of progress and getting it done. And I guess 
I don't know, I just wanted to share that because sometimes you hear people talk that are, quote, successful or whatever, and it seems all easy and everything just happens. And of course, everything makes sense. And you always get what you want and it succeeds. But it's not always that way. <laughs> sometimes you just have to start all over, but it's worth it. Um, yeah, so I'm super appreciative that anyone wants to interview me for anything and hear about my next crazy schemes. Um, so it's been, it's been really nice talking with you all. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been a real pleasure. I uh, wish you the best of luck in your new ventures. Uh, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it from the digital fabrication experiment. And I'd like to wish you a good night, Danielle. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much. Good night to y'all. Take care. Good night. Wow, Winston, she sure gave us a lot to think about, uh, at least for me. I do what I do primarily because I enjoy it, but I don't really think that much about directly showing other folks, you know, how fascinating this digital fabrication and, and these new technologies can be um, for both hobby or profit. She's kind of got me thinking I probably should be doing more more stuff like what you're doing, encouraging people to who haven't done anything like uh, CNC machining to kind of give it a try, right? Even I am sort of left speechless from that. Um, I thought I had my motivations for doing what I do all sorted out, right? I, I want more people to get on board with CNC because I think it's cool. But she took it to a whole new level. Um, educating people on digital fabrication technologies to prepare them for the future as a tool for promoting social equality and as a bulwark against the erosion of our industrial base and national security. That's like really next level stuff and kind of speech, speechless from that. Yeah, there's a bigger picture there, right? <laughs> Than just uh, how many likes can I get on Instagram? Um, yeah, so you know, she's got me thinking. Maybe I want to go spend more time with our local makerspace doing demos. Uh, you know, I've got the other mill, which is portable. It'd be a fun machine to take down there and just do some cool projects. And that's a fantastic way to do it. Just load up your CNC in your car and, and just go show people the technology. So um, anyway, I think we're almost out of time. I think I'll go ahead and wrap up here. Um, Winston and I want to say a special thank you to our listeners who bought the Launch Edition t-shirt. I really appreciate the support of the show. And if you missed out, don't worry. We're going to have plenty of uh, DFX swag coming soon. And we also want to thank you for listening. And please join us in two weeks for the next episode of the Digital Fabrication Experiment.